Well, good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. My name is Jeff Kuse. Uh, I teach at Seattle Pacific University, but also attend here with my family here at Bethany. And also, greetings to all of you online as well. As we come now, finally, I'm sure this feels like many of you, like I feel it, that we're finally at Advent. Um, After the year that we've had, we get to come in this season of waiting and celebration and preparation in our hearts for what God is going to do for us in this Advent season. I I don't know how you all are doing, but as Zoom life has become so normal, uh, it isn't even odd anymore, I've noticed how my life has been shaped by the mediated environments I'm in. I just recently... um, as a result of some work I'm doing at the university, I work with some PhD students doing research on young adults, and I've been doing this work for about five years. And as a result, I realized that I need to kind of train up to work with some of my PhD students. So something I swore I'd never do again is I went back to school, um, and I am pursuing another master's degree. And so in this master's degree, I'm studying like statistics and psychometrics and basically all the things a humanities person is painfully unequipped to do. Um, so um, I'm finding myself unbelievably humbled on a regular basis. But in this environment, I'm, I'm in this international program, and so I have people who are from Germany and from uh, India and Boston and Indonesia. And so it's this Zoom environment that I live with um, internationally. And what I've noticed with these kind of mediated worlds that we live in with Zoom is that everybody's in a little box. Everybody curates their backgrounds just so, so it's nice and perfect. Or you blur it out entirely so you can't see what people are doing behind it. And I feel like in some ways this is how we've learned to approach the Bible over the years too, where the figures that we talk about and we kind of throw out names are kind of these little box names, right? We just kind of have this picture of who they're supposed to be and then we move on to the next thing very quickly. And as you'll see in our sanctuary as we prepare for Advent over the next few weeks, um, Abigail has done a fantastic job of some of the ways that we're going to curate the conversations for Advent. You'll see over here the lineage of Jesus from Matthew's gospel and kind of preparing us for all these names. They can seem so tiny, like in a little box, but over the next five weeks we're going to expand five of them, right? Five women in the lineage of Jesus to get a much closer look and not a tiny little box around their lives. And also each week, we're going to have a different Isaiah passage of the prophecy of Jesus and getting us ready for coming for the birth of Jesus. So real exciting time. Um, As we get ready for this season, um, just to set up the series that's coming, we're going to be really diving deep into Matthew's family tree that he presents for us in the beginning of Matthew's gospel that Nathan read the first part today. And look at how family and lineage are such an important part um, in the ancient Near East as far as telling us the story of people and who they are. Uh, When we look at Jesus's family tree, as you see written up here, um, it's filled with a lot of people. And these people are not perfect. Right? These are flawed, broken, often sometimes painfully wounded people who populate the genealogy of our Savior. And so throughout Advent, uh, we're going to be looking at five different women in the story of Jesus over the next few weeks. Um, and it's our hope as a church, as we draw you into this conversation even more closely, that we'll illustrate the faithfulness of God through the generations. That what's coming through the generations leading up to the birth of Christ is the God's faithfulness through broken people, through, through discouraged people, through wounded people, and his commitment to humanity through the power of God's covenant to make and keep promises to honor God. So it's an exciting season as we get deeper into this. And so let me open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into some of our conversations before we look at some of the text. Will you pray with me? 
loving Savior, thank you for meeting us in this space and at this time. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would equip us to hear the story of Tamar as we dig deeper into the story of the lineage of Jesus that is our lineage too. May we hear deeply her power, her promise, and also her pain uh, as we think more about our own stories and how they are bound together in your hope this holiday season. Hear us, O Lord, as we cry out from our hearts, as we listen to Tamar's story, and when we find connection points, may you help us to see ourselves in your salvation and healing as well. We give you thanks, O Lord, for your gifts, and we thank you for your word. Open it to us this day, we ask. Amen. Well, first of all, some background, and then we're going to get into deep into Genesis 38 together. And so if you have your Bibles, you can have that open because we're going to kind of go almost verse by verse in some portions of this story. And I want to say as a precursor that this is a difficult story to get into. This is a story of violence, of sexual abuse, of, of, of women who have been abused by men, um, diminished in their identity. And so there may be portions of the story for some of you, this may be very, very real uh, as a wound. And so I just want you to know that as a church and as a pastoral staff, we want to support you in this time. If there are areas that this brings up, some conversations for you. At the end of the service as well, we'll have some pastoral staff to pray with you, to surround you as you hear this story. And also please, with our prayer books, please come up during our service as well to, to write down prayers that we can be praying for you as well. So first of all about Tamar. She exists at a time uh, when she's seen as a possession more than a person. And what's terribly real about the stories we look at this is this is not just in the distant past. We still live in an age where women are abused, where they're seen as objects, where they are violated on a regular basis and greatly, greatly diminished. Um, and so Tamar is going to be a very contemporary story as we hear it. She exists between cultures in the way that she lives. They, she's neither respected. She has no legal voice. Um, when she tries to articulate her concerns in the text, she's silenced. There's a lot of ways in which the stories we're going to hear has ascribed intent on her that is probably not her doing it all. Um, and it's actually through the history of reception we're going to hear different descriptions of her intent that we need to kind of really address as we think about this as a church. We don't know anything about her relationship to her first husband, Ur, that we're going to hear about. We just know that he's a bad guy. Um, and we also, then his brother, Anana, is also a horrible person, as we're going to hear as well. And so she's set up in these unbelievable areas of failure and abuse that are just heartbreaking. But what we do know in the story is that she's a revolutionary. She is tough. Uh, she is somebody who sees herself as a person before the eyes of God and others, and she's going to plant her feet firmly on the soil and declare her agency in ways that should give us hope in a day when people try to diminish people. She is the heir. I mean, she is the person who is an ancestor of our Lord, and there's a good reason why we need to say her name together, Tamar. Because she is going to be a person to hold on to and to really get to know. And I find so much hope in her story. So a couple of lenses I also want to put for you. And in your bulletin, you'll see that I have bullet points for three lenses. And I want you to kind of hear these as ways to read the text as we get deeper in it. Because they'll be helpful for what's to come. Um, first of all, first lens is to understand that this story is going to be about what is called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. Uh, and this is a custom that's practiced in many ancient societies that have strong kind of clan cultures um, and significant inheritance laws. And it worked like this. If a married man dies before producing an heir, 
Uh, his brother then becomes responsible for producing an heir for him on his behalf, right? Because in the ancient Near East, it's normal that the eldest son is going to inherit a double portion of the father's estate um, at the time of the father's death. So just to keep track of what's happening here, um, if, this, if the oldest son dies, the brother has to provide an heir, and that heir is going to get the inheritance, not that brother. Okay, so that's an important part of the story. Second lens to layer on top of this to read the text is widowhood culture. Widowhood culture. Um, in the practice that of this time, a widow who's lost her husband would return to her father's house and then become eligible for remarriage. Okay, but only a widow. Um, but if a widow is in a leveret marriage, as we mentioned in the first part, kind of tied in the system and who was waiting to have this marriage would not be entirely considered a widow yet. So what you happen, which with tomorrow's we're gonna see, she's stuck between two legal systems, right? This is the catch-22 reality where she has two legal systems that are at play and she doesn't work with either and they're clashing in her life, right? Who does she belong to as a widow? Does she belong to her father's family or to her in-law's family right now? Um, And as long as there's someone available to produce the heir, in some senses, she belongs to her in-laws. But being sent home to her house, as we're going to hear in the story, means that legally she should be free to be remarried as well. So what's she to do in this situation is we're going to see in tomorrow's story, she's trapped in this. But not a strong enough trap for Tamar. Because Tamar is going to have her agency asserted and go between this Silas and Charybdis of clashing systems and become free in a very powerful way. Third, and this is probably the most important lens I want you to hear and think about as we get deeper into the story. It is a story of veiling and unveiling. It is a story of veiling and unveiling. As we're going to hear in Tamar's story, she is in some ways the precursor to what Jesus is going to declare in his ministry when he stands in the synagogue and stands up and reads from the Isaiah scroll that we hear about in Luke 4.18, which goes as follows. Jesus stands up and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because it anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed. This powerful summation of who Jesus sees himself as being, who the Messiah is for the world, is really seen in Tamar's story before we even get to Jesus in the synagogue. Because Tamar as well is going to be moving in the spirit. She's going to be allowed to see who she is and who the world needs to see her as a woman who has agency and identity and has a name that we need to hear. She's going to move out to recover sight for those who are blinded. There's going to be a veiling, but also an unveiling of her energy and her power and her truth that she's going to get to announce. She's going to be seen in the way that she desires to be seen, that she's been called to seen from the foundation of the earth created to be seen. For our sake this day. Powerful stuff. So let's get into the story. So we meet Tamar in Genesis between accounts of the life of Joseph. So this is also important. In, Joseph, in chapter 37 of Genesis, Joseph, the one with the, you know, the coat with many colors, right? So he's got the Cotopaxi coat with all the great, really cool stripes on it, right? So he's got that coat going on for him. His brothers don't like Cotopaxi. They're probably North Face guys, and they throw him into a pit, right? And so, so Joseph is all of a sudden in this pit, and he gets recovered, and he gets out of slavery, and I'm sorry, brought into slavery. And then the story stops there, and then Genesis 38 shows up, 
And then we get back in 39, back to the story of Joseph where he rises in prominence of Potiphar's household. So the story gets broken up with the, oh, by the way, back in this. So it's kind of this flashback scene for a whole chapter. Um, and in many ways, it's like this meanwhile back in you know, Judah's story flashback. It's a little bit like Peter Falk in Princess Bride, if you know the grandfather story, where he's kind of sitting there and he's reading to his grandson, and there's Princess Buttercup, and there's these shrieking eels, and all of a sudden he stops the story, we pull back, and he says, oh, it looks like you're a little worried right now. Do you really want me to keep reading the story? And it feels a little bit like that, because in some ways, Genesis 38 is so hard and so gruesome, I want to skip over it too. I want to get back to Joseph's story, right? It's kind of a superhero story, rags to riches story. That's a good one. What happens to tomorrow's we're going to hear, I don't want to spend time with that too much. But because we have to, because we need to, to understand who Jesus is, thank the Lord that we do. Because it's going to tell us a story we need to hear. So let's sit in 38 now as we think about what God is teaching us. So in chapter 38, we come to the story of Judah. Um, He is the fourth son in Jacob and Leah's family, right? Jacob, he the one who wrestles on the ground with the divine. Um, And we find out that Judah has lost his way in many ways, um, where you have this whole ancestry going back to Abraham that he's a part of, right? Um, Judah wanders off. He ends up living with Canaanites and ends up taking a Canaanite wife for, 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 for his wife. And he has three sons by her. The eldest son named Ur, Um, is born and he needs to find, as as they grow up, he needs to find a wife. And this is where Tamar comes into the story. Now, Tamar's name in Hebrew means date palm, right? She's someone who produces fruit. She's someone who is growing and generative, right? This is her identity that we see in the story. But as the events transpire, there's going to be men in her life who are going to try to diminish that, try to take it away, um, try to seek to reduce her to something other than what she is as fruitful and productive, So we hear in the chapter that both of Judah's sons are wicked in the sight of the Lord, verse 7. And because of their wickedness, God is going to put each of them to death in in different parts of the story. We hear that Ur is wicked, um, the the first husband of, of, um, of Tamar, but there's no description of what's going on. Right. Well, what's interesting is in Hebrew, the very name Ur is an anagram for evil. So talk about a name on the nose, right? He's just a bad guy. Um, and Ur dies, right? He's put to death. And then, as we heard with regards to the nature of the marriage, the brother's now responsible for producing an heir, right? So Anan comes into the story. Now, Anan is told by Judah, his father, to go sleep with this widowed sister-in-law um, and to produce an heir, right? But knowing that any of, Er's, uh, any of Er's children are going to inherit twice the blessing as opposed to him. He just has sex with Tamar. He's not going to produce an heir at all, right? He just sees her as a sexual object, and he absolutely just treats her horribly in this scenario. So this occurs. So now we have these two men, right? Er and Anon, treating this woman like an absolute object, right? And in the midst of this, there's no testimony or agency that she's going to have as somebody who's a woman in this culture. I mean, who's going to believe her, right? This abuse is happening. Who's going to believe her? How many women do we know in our world today who are abused, who are shut down, who are silenced by systems, by men, by other kinds of things in our culture, and they do not have a chance to even say what is true? These things are silenced and hidden, but not from the eyes of God. 
not from the eyes of God. For what we see in the story, God sees, which even we in our systems can't, right? And both these men are seen as despised and, and they are put to death. The thing about Tamar is that she is somebody because of the lack of agency in the culture she and she's the equivalent of like a fallen leaf or a rock in your shoe that just annoys you, right? She has no voice, no agency whatsoever. It's just a piece of property. Um, but we, as we hear in Genesis, men who sexually mistreat women are dealt with, right? And this becomes an important thing we'll hear later in the story. So now Judah is in a situation where Tamar is powerful, right? She's the one remaining and two of his sons are gone, right? And he has now a third son, his youngest son, um, who when he grows up, he's promising that he's going to have her marry uh, Tamar. But instead what he does is, because he's, I mean, think about it, right? Two sons have died. Tamar's still standing. I need to get him out of the house, get her out of the house. So Tamar is sent to live with her father. And as we hear in verse 11, um, she goes off to live with her father and now, but is still legally tied to Judah. So now we have these two clashing laws that are in place for her, right? So Judah has put her in a sense of suspended animation, right? In her widowhood, right? On one level, she's legally in the rights to go find a new husband, but also she's still tied to this former family. So it's a bit like Han Solo where, where he's kind of frozen in carbonite, Right, because this is all of a sudden what t- what's happened to Tamar. She's kind of frozen in time, and she has no agency whatsoever to move forward. Now, years go by, as we hear in the story, Judah's husband, I mean, sorry, Judah's wife has now passed away, and Tamar um, has, has now become certain that Judah's not going to fulfill any of his promises. And Tamar is stuck, and what is she going to do? Well, taking matter into her own hands, as we hear in the story, um, she takes herself out of suspended animation, um, and she goes to a road and with a veil over her face, goes and waits. Now, here's the important lens I want you to hear about veiling and unveiling. And this is critical to how we read the rest of the story. Um, the role that Tamar's clothing plays in this story is vital for us to hear. Uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Sarah Koenig, who's a member here at Bethany and her family are here as well, um, has written on Genesis 38, and it's a really powerful um, way that she looks at this passage. In verse 14, there's three verbs of clothing and unclothing that's going on in this passage. We hear that Tamar takes off her widow's garments, she covers herself with a veil, she wraps herself again, and then in verse 19, she's again going to take off the veil, um, and then she will dress herself again in garments of widowhood. What Tamar is doing in this passage with her clothing, with this veiling and unveiling, is she is, um, even though she, the legal status is in question about whether she can remarry or not between these things, she's doing the socially inappropriate act of taking off her widow's clothes and putting on a veil. She is exerting her own agency. She's not going to be dressed by other people. She's going to allow herself to go out and be the person that she knows she needs to be. Now, here's the thing. What do we make of women in our culture when they assert themselves. Well, I've been in many studies where we've looked at various ways in which even in hiring practices, women who assert themselves are considered shrill or pushy or men are considered natural leaders, right? When women take agency, there's always a challenge in our culture about what's happening here. And Tamar is no different. As we see in in verse 15, when Judah saw her on the side of the road, he thought her to be a prostitute for she covered her face. And many commentaries through the centuries have said, well, that's what what she must be doing. 
She must be wanting to be seen as a prostitute. Nowhere in the text is it telling us that that was her intention. Nowhere in the text is telling her that's what she was doing. What we do see throughout the history of scripture is veils are used for people who are ready to be married, to be brides, right? And we see this over and over and over again. So here's what I want you to hear. Judah is wrong to assume that Tamar is a prostitute. She's not a prostitute. The text itself does, uh, does not allow us to kind of think she's trying to pretend to be one in order to gain advantage. It's Judah who gets it wrong. And we would be wrong to assume that Judah is correct. Why do we continue as a culture to see that women have to be doing something vile when they're just trying to assert their identity? What's happened in our world? Well, we see this happening over and over and over again. Tamara's not a liar. She's not deceitful. Veils are clear markers in the ancient world, much like today, of those who are ready to be married, have become brides. She has the right to do so as far as the legal system has told her to do so. But instead, Judah's interpretation has become our interpretation of her intent in the text. And that's a fascinating thing to sit with for a bit. So Tamar's intent is to publicly present herself as a bride, to indicate to the world that, that Judah has up, failed to uphold his rights and those of her dead husbands. Her veil both blinds Judah. He can't imagine her as being anything other than a prostitute because if he told her to do something, then she better do it. So that's why he sees her in this way when you read the text in this way. It's a powerful unveiling through a veiling that you see happening. She is more than Judah ever imagined she could be. And she's standing on the road to let us know that as well. So Tamar declares this as she's standing there. Her right to be completely and fully herself. Eligible for life and life abundantly. And she allows herself in this situation. Tamar refuses to be ignored. Denied. Pretended away. She refused a life that would most likely end in her being homeless and starving. She outsmarted the man who had all the power over her. And he acknowledged her righteousness in the end, even though many would prefer to still condemn her. Because what we see in the story is this. Tamar does sleep with Judah, right? That's a fact. As we heard in Nathan's reading, she claims some items to prove who he is, knowing fully well how this story is going to turn out. And a pivotal moment comes in Judah's life that we hear in verse 26 that's so incredibly powerful for Judah is that, he, that, that Judah makes this claim, she is more righteous than I. Or more accurately translated in the Hebrew, she is righteous, not I. She is righteous, not I. And so Judah's turning point comes after Tamar's pregnancy, but his eyes are now opened. Truth has been unveiled. In her courage and intelligence, she defeats a system that can constantly try to reduce her as something merely as a gender or for some people in our, in our culture, a race or economic status or sexual identity, that she is a person before the eyes of God. And as a result of that, history has now changed for us here in this room. The children that Tamar are going to bear become the ancestors of King David and subsequently the ancestors as we see of Jesus. This is the story when we get close to these people. This is Tamar's story. This is your story. And it's a powerful story for us at Advent for a number of reasons. And I want to settle into maybe three takeaways uh, for us at Advent. And I have some bullet points for you in the bulletin as well on this. Uh, 
Now, tomorrow's story probably isn't going to be on the Hallmark Channel this year as a Christmas option, all right? And that's too bad, because it is our story. It's our story as a church, and it's our story of faith. And first thing I want you to hear about tomorrow for Advent, and which is a great reminder for all of us today, is your name will not be forgotten. Your name will not be forgotten. This Advent season, I want you to sit in the reality that we live in a world that's going to call you by a lot of different names, right? Shame, failure, inadequate, you know, not enough schooling, not the right job. You don't measure up, right? There's a lot of names that pile on you like barnacles, right, that we get through this culture that we're in. Tamar's name is known. Tamar's name is preserved. Tamar's name is in our Bible and in our scripture and in our history of the lineage of Jesus because Tamar's name is a name that we should hear. And your name too, your real name needs to be heard. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, there's this wonderful promise. It's one of my favorite parts of scripture where in the second chapter of Revelation as we enter into the new Jerusalem and God brings you into this wholeness and healing that you are called to, it says these words that a white stone will be given to each of you. And on the white stone will be written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. In this world that calls you names like shame, and disappointment, and brokenness, the Lord has a name written on a white stone ready for you to receive. It is your true name that the Lord wants to call you and give to you. Probably the best Christmas gift that any of us could get this year is our true name. And the Lord desires to give you that gift. Know that. And your name is not going to be forgotten. Over and over again in systems of oppression, Tamar is, being, is attempted to be diminished. Her name erased, eradicated, right? But Tamar's name is remembered. Tamar's name is remembered. Secondly, another thing to remember that I think she reminds us this Advent to remember is that the arc of history bends towards justice. Bends towards justice. As we hear in Revelation chapter 21, when we get to the New Jerusalem, we find that the names of the 12 tribes are written on the doors of this New Jerusalem, including... The tribe of Judah. Now, now that you've gotten to know Judah a little bit in Genesis 38, who thought that was going to happen, right? Who thought Judah is going to be on this name? I mean, this guy has got some work ahead of him to get out of this, right? But Judah's name is there because of Tamar. (laughs) Because of Tamar, right? And Tamar brings a level of justice and redemption that Judah himself can't even bring on his own. The arc of history is going to bend that way, and it may not be in our lifetime. As we see in the lineage of Jesus, as we're going to go through the next five weeks of waiting, some of the work of justice and redemption will not be seen in our time, but our progeny will. But those who come after us will. So the work that we do now is for them is as much as it is for us. We live in an unbelievable world of abuse and brokenness, Right? of people who are diminished because of their gender, because of their race, because of their economic status, because of their sexual identity, and on and on and on and on and on. And we may not see full and complete redemption in our lifetime. But like a meteor striking the ocean and causing waves to move out through our world, we see justice coming ripple after ripple after ripple because of people like Tamar, who continue to live in complete, utter abandon to what God has called them to be in their identity. And third, and this is where I really want you to lean into as well, is that your wounds and your scars may indeed be actual maps to bring you to the manger of Jesus this season. Your wounds and your scars may be actual maps to bring you to the manger of Jesus. 
In your um, hand, in your bulletin, it, it says a Matthew passage, but the passage should actually be Luke 2, 7. Luke 2, 7. The courage of Tamar in the story that we're told about with all its violence and pain is incredibly difficult to sit with. It's not a pretty story, but it's a story of pain and hurt that seeks after hope and healing in this world. And we need more real stories like that. In Luke 2, 7, we hear that when Mary is wrapping up Jesus and putting him in the manger, she wraps him with bands of cloth, is what we hear in the Greek, bands of cloth. And, and this happens because there's no room for him in the end. Now, what do we make of these bands of cloth? Well, there's been a lot of ways this has been received, right? One way has been this, what we call swaddling clothes, that you know, it was very typical in first century Palestine to wrap your baby nice and tight to keep them nice and close, right? Another traditional reading from commentators is the bands of cloth represent humility and poverty that show Jesus is gonna be born into poverty and this is who Jesus, the preferential of the poor may be part of the story too. And those are both accurate. But I believe theologically, there's something in these bands of cloth that are really ripped from the veil of Tamar. That they're wrapped up theologically through the centuries, something handed down for us through faith, that are wrapping the Lord in these bands for you and for me. Because not everybody who comes to the manger is gonna be coming in the same way. Some are gonna be coming because they see a brilliant star in the sky, right? And they're gonna go right to the place of Jesus because of that. Others are going to go because they hear name declared from the angels of wonderful counselor, almighty God, Emmanuel, prince of peace, and that's going to bring them to the manger. Others are going to hear the songs of praise, and they're going to follow all the singers to there. But there are still others who are coming to this manger too, who are battered and bruised and broken. And there are bands of cloth for you and for me to be wrapping those wounds at, at the manger. Because the manger of Jesus provides a lot of cloth for a lot of broken people who need it right now, right? Who are not running, but literally crawling with everything they can just to try to get there. There may be a deep part of you right now that needs healing beyond that which you even think is possible. You are invited to the manger to get some bands of cloth for you and for those you love. If you come into this season seeking healing, you are welcome at the manger of Jesus. If you are here kind of looking for wholeness, you are welcome at the manger of Jesus. For there are bands of cloth, bands of cloth that have been used as veils that are now unveiled and ready for you to receive healing in this season. So it is here that Tamar becomes really important for us to hear because someone who is broken, who is abused, who was taken for something other than who she really was, has a place at the manger too. And if that's you, you're welcome at this manger. I mentioned those Zoom calls that I was in uh, and I've continued to be in as part of my master's program. And just recently I was in a group project with people all around the world. Um, and one of the people who was in one of my Zoom calls, her name is Prachti. She's a bond trader in New York City. Um, and um, you know, at one, one of our Zoom calls, she was really distracted right? And we're trying to get some projects done. We're trying to get some data up together. And she kept looking over her shoulder. And, you know, it's like, and finally somebody else in the group asked, Prachi, are you okay? What's going on? And she goes, well, it's kind of distracting where I'm at right now. And because you know, she had her Zoom background all blurred out. I couldn't see what was going on. And she goes, is there everything okay? And she goes, well, and then she unclicked the button and unblurred the background. Well, she had flown from New York to her wedding, uh, which was in her village in India. 
And there were 2,000 people in the streets dancing and singing, and there were all these colors happening. She goes, well, it's my wedding week, and there's a lot going on right now. And I snuck out to be in the Zoom call because I, didn't, I wanted credit for the assignment. <laughs> and, and we're all going, there's a wedding happening. There are thousands of people celebrating you right now. I think we can cover the stats. I think we got this. You know, you need to go be in your party. You need to go be there. And I want to tell you that there's a party. There's a wedding for you this season, right? There's a wedding waiting for you this season. And, and I invite you to come to that wedding. I invite you to come to Advent ready to receive all that's going on and bring all your brokenness and your hopes and your dreams with you because that is exactly what Tamar is telling us to do as well. So let me pray for us. We'll bring the band back out together. And as we pray and as we move into this last portion of worship together, uh, please know that we have prayer partners here for you and also prayer, um, prayer books up front. If there are burdens, if there's hurt, if this has brought up some questions for you this, this season, please write them and let us pray for you as we close our worship together. Uh, will you pray with me? Loving and hopeful God, we give you thanks for the story and testimony of Tamar in our time. We give you thanks, Lord, for her way and her tenacity and her intelligence and her agency not to be diminished by the systems of oppression around her. But instead, oh Lord, you've led her into an identity and a place in our hearts and our lineage that is a worthy ancestor of the Messiah who calls us to be healed and to be whole. Be with us, O Lord, in our brokenness and our pain. We give you thanks, O Lord, that in your manger there are bands of cloth enough for all of us to bandage the wounds, to bring us whole, and to bring us home. Hear us, O Lord, as we sing together and we pray together. Meet us in our waiting in the season of Advent as we sink our wholeness for the sake of your glory. Amen.